Hi and welcome to the latest episode of the School Leadership Podcast brought to you by NAHT Edge and NAHT. This episode is an English special and later we'll hear from one of the leading experts in the field, Pi Corbett. Pi gives us his views of the current primary assessment arrangements and the critical role that talk plays in the teaching of writing for children of all ages. We also have an update for you on our own assessment campaign from NAHT General Secretary Russell Hobby and NAHT Edge Director James Bowen. Now, Pi Corbett is a former teacher, head teacher, lecturer and Ofsted inspector. He now works with schools across the country as a consultant developing their approach to the teaching of English. He's an author himself and has published over 250 books. In recent years, Pi has become very well known for his work on talk for writing. NHT Edge director James Bowen caught up with Pi at Knoll Park Primary School in Bristol following a day of training. He started by asking for Pi's views of the current English primary curriculum and, in particular, the large focus on grammar within it. Well, the first thing to say is I, I love my grammar. As somebody who is interested in words and language and where words came from and how our language has developed, um, I love grammar, uh, but, and I worked on grammar for writing. That was sort of, I can remember inventing grammar for writing um, when we had the National Literacy Strategy. Um, and at that particular point, we go back to what was around the year 2000. Um, if you spoke to primary teachers, they wouldn't know what a clause was. Most of them wouldn't know what a pronoun was. And that wasn't their fault. It was because they weren't taught those things at school. So we've come a long way. Um, the profession knows a lot more about our language. Um, the big worry I think that people have is it is so detailed that the time needed to help children uh, learn the grammar and be able to pass the test um, the time you need for that uh, takes time away from what in many cases uh, for many children are going to be the more important things of helping them learn to read and write and speak. So today, for instance, there, were, there was a teacher here from a school, 97% English as a new language, very poor area. Um, the average le length of time spent in school is two years. So this is serious stuff. Children arriving in the country... And we need to help those young people acquire the English language so that they can communicate, read, and they can write. Uh, and if they have to spend time on the subjunctive and the determiner, I'm not convinced that that's a good idea. Uh, and I think teachers find that very frustrating. The level of detail, um, uh, it's too detailed. And there are things in it which are pointless, Knowing what a determiner, you have to be able to use them quite evidently. Knowing what it is is neither here nor there. Um, actually, it's relatively straightforward to teach. Um, grammar you can teach, but the bits that are far more difficult are composition and comprehension. And I think that's what worries teachers. We can teach them the subjunctive if we have to. We can teach them the past progressive. But more importantly. Have we got time to spend on comprehension and composition, and reading and writing, speaking and listening? 
So I think it's a matter of balance and time. Um, the test actually this year in grammar was relatively straightforward. Most schools didn't have a particular problem with it. Um, but they did spend a lot of time on it. So we're seeing a lot of discrete grammar lessons. It's eating up time. For me, that's that's the worry. And I think for most teachers, that's their concern. So how do you feel about the idea of having a grammar test at Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2? Is that something you'd potentially do away with and just judge writing per se? Or do you think there is a place for a grammar test? I think it's all right to have a grammar test. Um, I mean, when I was ahead many 35 years ago or whatever it was, we did lots of tests. Tests of in a weird way, testing can be quite good for children because you've got to reactivate what you've been taught. So you're revisiting in your head what you've been taught, uh, and particularly if the test is then used diagnostically. So we think about, okay, what have they got, what have they not got, and then what are we going to teach next? But there's no particular harm in tests. Um, it's the amount of detail that I think people would appreciate refining. Either that... Or we could say to ourselves, right, let's have two tests. A bit like we used to do with the old um, the sort of level six test, if you remember. We could say to ourselves, well, let's get the basics in grammar um, uh, for, and have an age-related test. Just, just ensure, just secure the basics that you need for communication so that you know, fluent sentences, all of that sort of business, and they, they know about main word classes they can handle clauses, manipulate them, etc. Let's get the basics there. And then for those children who are, and there are children who are interested in the finer points of language, for those children, um, let's have a, a more demanding uh, test for those who um, are really ready for that. We've, kind of, we've naturally gone on to tests here. Yeah. Um, so I suppose it's a good opportunity to ask you about kind of your views on, on the SATs last summer. I mean, I think it's fair to say both the reading and writing assessments have come in for a lot of criticism yes. from teachers. So I'd be interested to get your views and how you saw the whole process um, in terms of the reading test, how that worked, and also the, the writing assessment. We had the secure fit um, in the summer. Yeah. How did you see the whole, whole process? Well, the reading, I think most people would say it was... Um, the test was not well designed because presumably a national test should be there to um, allow children to show what they know, understand and can do so we can accredit them uh, and what they're capable of. And what happened was it started really difficult and that threw children at the beginning and that was reported across the country um, and children were, were distressed. I mean, it's a big thing the tests for them and um, schools take it seriously parents take it seriously children take it seriously if you get the atmosphere right they should be looking forward to right come on let's get in there and show what we can do sort of thing and it wasn't like that so I, I think a sort of a recognition by those who are designing the tests that A yes we got it wrong I think the profession would wel- welcome that and then B well we'll start easy you know, the initial bit of reading and the initial questions should be relatively simple to give confidence and so that those who are perhaps not as confident with reading can at least do something and feel they've been accredited for what they can do and then it needs to become increasingly demanding. I don't think it's that... I've not met any teacher who is again the idea of let's try and ratchet our standards up. Let's see where we can go with this. You know, the profession is so different to what it was 35 years ago um, that whole notion of school improvement and um, that 
concern and, and, and indeed sort of excitement by where can we take all of this? You know, look at the new math stuff that's coming over Shanghai Maths. You know, where can we take all of this? Let's learn some new skills. People are excited by these things. So I've not met anybody who said, um, you know, they were worried because it was you know far too difficult. Or we all know it was difficult. We all know it was demanding. It was the design of the test that was the issue. So hopefully that can be sorted. Um, and it, in those circumstances, I always think in those circumstances, much better if people say, yeah, actually, we did get it a bit wrong. And next year we'll go for it because people then respect you and say, well, you listen to us. Um, you know, we've got to remember in all of this that the heads and the teachers who are complaining, these are not bad people. These aren't mischievous people. The primary teachers, for goodness sake, you know, they're the backbone of this country. Um, so they should be respected and listened to on that front. And I really want to ask you about the writing. I'm really yeah. interested in, in your views on, particularly on that secure fit approach, where, you know, the idea you have to tick every box in a list of criteria in order to be at a certain standard. Is that okay with you? Is that is that a good way of assessing writing, do you feel? Or? It was a disaster. Um, I mean, we all moaned about QCA, but I cannot recall such a complete bungling going on. Um, we moaned about them, uh, but um, they were it was a highly professional operation. And if you take something as serious as national testing um, and take away the body which had been there running it and developing it and deepening understanding over many years, and you farm it out to people who possibly do not have that experience, then um, we can't be surprised. The moderation was disgracefully done across the country. Um, you will have heard and been told all sorts of stories. Um, moderators doing all sorts of things which they weren't supposed to be doing. It was totally unfair. The truth is, we do not know how well children did last year. We have no clue because the moderation was done differently. And um, that was a disaster. Um, people were very upset by that. So that's the moderation. That could be improved. The actual thing itself is just its a ridiculous idea. When you are creating assessment systems, you have to be very careful because it is in a high-stakes situation as we have in this country. The curriculum is a secondary issue, sadly, because curriculum, in my view, is hugely important. But it's not the curriculum that matters. What matters to teachers and heads is the assessment. It is the assessments that drive what people do. Well, we could spend time talking about whether or not that's right, because as I said, I think curriculum is really important, but it's the assessment that will drive what people do. And um, if you say in the teaching of writing, you must have these 18 grammatical features in, it leads to bad teaching. And it leads, and you can't blame people for this. If you're told that your children will not be um, achieving unless they have used a colon, a semicolon, relative clauses, fronted adverbials, then those are the things which people are going to focus on. And it led to um, sort of tick sheet teaching, where, and I saw it myself, almost immediately we knew the interim, so called interim uh, framework for assessment. I saw on boards, in rooms, great lists of all the things that you were supposed to do and children trying to shoehorn it in. Um, and um, my own view is that probably the standards in writing went down as a result of that, though it may have looked as if they'd gone up. So let's 
imagine that we can get rid of secure fit. That goes. What's the alternative? It does. Is it going back to more of a kind of a best fit type approach, or is it something radically different? How how should we move this forward? Do you think? Well, you see, you, in the end, you start wondering whether or not we should go back to some sort of test, but uh, as being an alternative. But I don't know how people would feel about that. Um, I quite like the best fit idea. I think that you see, we can sit down and I can read a piece of writing and I can tell you whether or not it's an effective piece of writing, whether it moved me, whether it was an experience, whether it persuaded me to a viewpoint. And obviously you want well-controlled writing that has an effect upon the reader. Um, but there may be, I mean, Hemingway, for instance, used quite a lot of short sentences. He wasn't a great one for using complex sentences. So where does that leave Hemingway? You end up with looking around you and thinking, well, just because it's got these features in does not necessarily make it highly effective as a piece of writing. And um, I, it was very sad, I thought. And teachers spending time getting children going over their writing again and again. I mean, how to kill a love of writing. You have to redraft it and redraft it and redraft it. And you can discuss it with the class. You can discuss it in pairs um, so that you're doing it independently. And you start thinking, this is all a nonsense. Absolute nonsense. It's dreadfully done. I want to pick up something you, you alluded to earlier. You, you gave me the impression, perhaps, that almost SATs have, have gone too far. They've grown out of control. The high-stakes nature of them really has too much of a distorting effect. Is, is, that fair? is there still a place for, for some form of SATs, do you think? We always used to do testing, as I said, and we did quite a lot of testing. It probably is a good idea to have some sort of benchmark to be aiming for. It's what you do with those results, isn't it? And it seems to me that probably every school can improve and we'll raise our game. Um, but the, the best fit idea, rather than you have to have these 18 things in it, the best fit idea is probably better. Get every episode on the day it comes out. Subscribe now on iTunes. We'll have more from Pi Corbett in the second half of this podcast, including what he would do if he were made Secretary of State for Education. But first, we have an update on our current assessment campaign from Russell Hobby, James Bowen, and our Director of Representation and Advice, Paul Whiteman. James started by outlining just what went so badly wrong with the SATs this summer. I think um, we probably need to go back way beyond actually the summer because I think in fairness the problems really started back at the start of the academic year, really from sort of September onwards. Um, so we had the issue with materials being released really quite late. I'm thinking particularly around the, sort of the writing exemplification material there, which we didn't get until actually very close to the time we having to do the assessments. Um, and also we had the issue where... Uh, information was being released and then we had to have clarifications and then the bizarre situation where the clarifications were being clarified um, and all of that really meant that schools and school leaders were coming under sort of unnecessary pressure having to get used to that and all the extra workload that went with it um, so that's kind of the administrative side of things um, and to a certain extent I think we could probably hope that in year two most of that would have gone away there's a certain amount of you know teething problems with that um, and if it was only that maybe it wouldn't be such an issue but I think the problems really are quite you know certainly more fundamental than that 
Um, and just to pick on a few of those, uh, for example, I think the reading test caused a lot of problems last year. Um, it was a particularly badly designed test, in all honesty. Um, and there were problems in that for a lot of children, when they opened the paper, because of the way the questions are ordered, it didn't go from a natural process of easiest to hardest. So certain children were opening up and just were really sort of flummoxed by the opening questions and weren't able to access it. So it was a problem at that end, particularly for children with special educational needs. Um, but interestingly, there was also a problem at the other end of the paper as well, or even our, our, our more able children um, found it quite difficult purely in terms of finishing the paper because there just wasn't enough time to answer all the questions that were in there. Um, so you had a bizarre situation where it wasn't working at either end. And it's quite unusual to have your more able children um, as upset as they were last summer because they weren't actually able to, to show what they could do. Um, so the reading test itself was certainly a problem. Um, and I've, I've written quite a lot about the problems with the writing interim framework, and I think they're, they're well known. Um, my, my feeling is there's kind of a, a consensus, really, amongst most people in education that secure fit as a way of assessing writing really isn't the way to go. Um, you'll hear from Pi Corbett in this podcast talking about just that. Um, and I think, you know, at least all sorts of problems, partly it kind of encourages teachers to teach in a way that we know doesn't lead to great writing. Teachers feeling they need to get children to shoehorn in three semicolons or to go through the checklist. And that's not the way you, you either, you know, get good writing or encourage children to want to carry on writing in the future. Um, and that was compounded by the, the writing moderation guidance, um, which wasn't very good last year, and it wasn't clear. And what that meant was we had lots of local authorities interpreting it in different ways, so that depending on where you were in the country, your moderation process looked quite different, um, which in itself leads to questions around the reliability of that data. You know, if, if one local authority are asking to see X number of examples across so many pieces and another local authority aren't, that, you know, in terms of reliability of the data, that's a real issue. Um, and then probably finally it's worth just mentioning we had the kind of whole the spectre of this idea of a year seven resit hanging over us as well, um, which was a proposal rather than a reality. But, you know, we've said already in a year where a lot of things were sort of going wrong, that really perhaps was perhaps the worst example of them all. Um, and I think really quite insulting to primary schools who've been working with children for seven years to suddenly think that in a term, suddenly we'd be able to turn this around and children who weren't working the expected standard would suddenly be working after a result of sort of just, you know, three months of secondary school. And if you speak to our secondary members, they were clear, they said exactly the same, you know. And also there was all the logistic issues that would go with that in terms of how you organise children into those who have met the standard, those who haven't. And then that problem in terms of, well, what happens if they don't meet it second time round, which a, a large number of them, I'm sure, wouldn't have done. Um, so... They're just perhaps a few of the highlights, but they're certainly some of the, the biggest issues and concerns that our members were talking about when it came to assessment last year. And Russell, NHT and NHT Edge have been in negotiations with the DfE, and we had an announcement from the Secretary of State last week. Uh, what's your analysis of what Justin Greening had to say on assessment? James has just sketched out a pretty disastrous year for assessment at primary and indeed a potential for disaster at secondary uh, level as well. And members were quite clear that they couldn't take another year uh, of that sort of basically incompetence in test design and delivery. Um, however, one of the problems, one of the causes of the, the challenges we faced was actually rushing the implementation of the test. So we're in a fairly pretty bind uh, there in the sense that we want change, but we can't have change too quickly. Otherwise, it will be other poorly designed tests again. So what we've 
we've basically been negotiating with the government um, over the summer period and the early autumn term. There's been a number of hurdles put in from the Brexit vote to the summer holidays to a complete change of personnel at the top as well, which has meant it's perhaps slightly slower than we might, might wish. But the government, to be fair to them, did recognise a, a series of challenges and have come out with uh, a set of suggestions for how we might um, solve those. Now, those can be split into the short and the long term. In the long term, there is the offer of a comprehensive review of primary assessment, running from reception through to key stage three, um, delivered in partnership with the profession to give us a a series of uh, perhaps a more coherent picture of what it could look like, uh, which might be implemented in the 2018-2019 academic year, so a couple of years off, uh, which does mean that we needed some changes in the short term as well. Uh, And the changes that have been proposed Um, Firstly and most importantly I think that they've agreed not to base intervention in schools on the 2016 data alone. Now that doesn't mean that a local authority or regional schools commissioner aren't going to have a conversation with a school uh, but it does mean that they have taken away the powers to force an intervention using the 2016 data and given how low quality the 2016 data was and how variable I think that's exactly the right thing to do. Uh, They've also promised a more positive approach to the use of floor standards and the coasting standard in the future where it will be used to target support at those schools that need it uh, rather than automatic conversion to academy status and I think both of those uh, are very important. Uh, They've agreed uh, again in the short term to a moratorium on further tests and uh, as again as James indicated there was a whole pipeline uh, of additional tests coming our way from another reset of the phonics screening check um, to the use of the key stage one test data rather than teacher assessment, uh, a multiplication check uh, potentially in year four or year six um, and uh, finally the year seven reset and all of those have been taken off the table until the long-term review has reported but I think most importantly the year seven reset has been taken off the table altogether Uh, and there's a lot of debate at the moment about grammar schools and the return of the 11 plus Uh, the year seven reset would have reintroduced the 11 plus for every pupil uh, in the country so I think that's a really important uh, achievement even though it's a future test I think it was an important one to stop. So we've had um, all of those. I think the area of disappointment that we've not yet seen enough progress on is in the writing teacher assessment. Uh, Now, we do need to acknowledge that there are some significant changes to the moderation guidance. It will be much more consistent. uh, And a definition of consistency has been created, which means that not every piece of work has to be correct uh, in every instance. So that might help. But ultimately, again, as James said, I think the whole philosophy of secure fit creates the wrong outcomes in writing and we would want to see that on the long-term review uh, for a completely new approach to how we assess uh, how we assess writing Uh, and there have been some changes to the reading test promised as well a better sequencing of the questions such that children can engage in what we would hope were a common sense way of getting towards harder questions towards the end I think that will allow pupils to show more fairly um, their ability so actually quite a big package of changes Um, there are some really big wins I think on the use of the data um, and the year seven reset and some shortfalls and disappointments in other areas which then leads us to think about well what do we do as an association and a profession in response to that Paul can you talk us through what will happen next in terms of getting our members view on that Yes, I think it's um, important to realise that we we talk to our members continuously. Um, So leading up to this, we would have understood our members' views from meetings and telephone calls and meeting our members on a day-to-day basis. And that's what really informed um, the negotiations going forward about how to get the changes that uh, 
that we felt were necessary. And as with all these things, it's always a mixed package. Um, so now we need to really understand what our members think um, about where we are um, and whether, frankly, it's enough um, to go forward on the long term and continue to engage with government over the longer term to see the, uh, the full changes that uh, we think are necessary. So rather than just talking to members, we're going to have a more formal consultation through email. So we've emailed all our members that we want to hear from. Um, so check your, um, your email boxes um, uh, when you get time. And there's some questions in there that we, we'd like answered. And what's crucial about this is that everybody takes part. Um, the big worry about these things when you get some progress and you get some movement forward is those that are happy with it um, don't say too much. Um, and we want to hear from everybody whether you're happy with it or not. Um, and then we'll be able to make some decisions about how to go forward. Um, and I think it's pretty clear that uh, if our members say, no, it's not enough, then the next, the next stage is to have... Um, a ballot under the statutory procedures to, to consider some form of industrial action after that. So we're at that key moment now where we need to properly understand our members' views on this um, so that we can make the key decision going forward about whether it's enough to progress in the longer term or whether we need to do something slightly more dramatic. And James, how does this apply to NHD EDGE members? Um, so EDGE members will, will be asked the same question in exactly the same way. And obviously it's crucial to us that we understand EDGE members' views about this and, and where they want us to go next. Um, if we got to the stage and we are talking about actual sort of industrial action and, and potential boycott, obviously there's, it's crucial there that the heads and, and deputies take the lead on that one. It's because it's the head teachers who have the statutory responsibility in terms of making sure the SATs are taken. Um, so in, in that sense, they're the ones who actually have to kind of, we have to ask the question directly to that stage. But EDGE members, like all other members, will be asked for their views and, and their views will be really important in terms of determining what we do next. Both NEHT and NEHT EDGE members will be kept up to date with developments in our assessment campaign via our weekly newsletter. Now back to the second part of our interview with Pi Corbett, in which James started by asking for Pi's views on how best schools can teach children to become excellent writers. Well, the first thing I always work on if I'm working with schools where we, you know, we're not doing so well, the first thing is presentation and handwriting. It's very old-fashioned, but if your handwriting looks good, you feel good about yourself, there's a smile on your face, your mum is pleased with you, you can read it so you can edit it, your mate can read it so you can do a bit of response partnering work uh, and it builds self-esteem. And what we know is that, that um, handwriting can be very quickly improved across a school. Probably half a term, you can up everybody's game. So when they get into year six, those books, you know, they take home what, three, four, five of those big topic books packed with writing. They should be meaty rich, wonderful things that they want to keep for the rest of their lives. And if they are nasty things with the edges all curled up, <laughs> with the teachers spitting and hissing from the margins, then you don't want to keep it. And it's not special and it doesn't mean anything to you. So presentation, I think, is hugely important. And we can raise our game almost immediately by working on handwriting and presentation. And linked to the presentation is the whole business of publishing. And I think that we should be thinking with the children how are we you know if we're going to spend two or three weeks working on story how are we going to publish this story is it going to be um, a homemade little book are we going to do a class anthology is it going to go on the class blog so other people around the world can read this are we going to make a, a display in the corridor how are we going to publish this you know why try hard when you're six years old with handwriting and with spelling why try hard uh, and with crafting the sentences we try hard because other people are going to read it. So for me, handwriting, presentation and publishing 
those things are really important. And they're relatively simple to do in school. You've just got to give it time. So that's the first thing. Then, uh, in terms of spelling, it's important that um, phonics is sound to print. So early on, we're saying cat, we're segmenting it, and then we're writing down C-A-T. So um, right from the beginning, they are using our sounds, obviously, to blend and to read words, but really importantly, to write as well. So we're getting the writing right at the very beginning, basic spelling. Phonics is key for spelling. It's liberating. If you can do phonics, you can spell any word in the English language. And even if you get it a bit wrong, everybody can read it. So it's a great confidence giver. Having said that, we also need to make sure that children are looking carefully at words that are spelled correctly. So they're building their visual memory of what those words look like. And they need to be taught spelling. So they need to be taught about uh, roots and der derivations and how words work, suffixes, prefixes, all of that business. So you need, what we're saying there is we need a cracking good phonics program that leads into a really good spelling program. And the point of the spelling is it should be there. We, we, we need to get good at spelling because we're writers, we love our writing. And again, the, writer, the spelling liberates the writing. And if the brain is having to worry about spelling, then it's not thinking about composition. So being automatic in terms of spelling is really important. And I think that spelling business should, should sit within the context of being interested in words. How do words work? Where do words come from? What is their function in sentences? So if you teach spelling, spelling is one thing. and We can bash away at those lists in the national curriculum. And where those lists came from and what their purpose is, nobody in the country has yet been able to explain to me how they got there, and what their purpose is. Obviously, somebody, who perhaps should remain nameless, sat down and made that list up. But surely, if it's part of a curriculum, we should have had explained to us the purpose of those words. I actually think a much better thing would have been to have taken, say, the 300 most common words that are used in writing and just say to everybody, by the time you leave a primary school, every kid should be able to read, uh, spell, or read and spell all of these words. And that makes sort of common sense, really, doesn't it? Uh, so the spelling is really important. It, it should sh sit within a love of the English language and how it, how it works. So we, we're teaching spelling in terms of word interest and because we need this purposefully when we come to write. So you've got your handwriting, you've got your spelling. Grammar for writing. I still think that that idea is absolutely correct, that we're learning how to um, construct sentences, various sentences. Short sentences for drama, um, you, you know, um, putting in a relative clause, as we said, to add in extra information. Tagging on clauses to build up a much longer descriptive sentence. So the grammar is a, is a writerly tool. Um, so all of that's important. Um, and then to teach writing, you need models in your head. There is only, you know, if you want children to write a persuasive letter, where's the best place to find out about this? It's obvious. Go to go and look at great persuasive writing, the finest that we can find, and get familiar with it. Spend time, loiter with some model texts. And it's great to read them, but it's even more powerful if children learn them orally. And that's where talk for writing comes in, because that's an important part of it. Because that way, you, you hear the language and you internalise the language through drawing it, dramatising it and saying it. So 
Aristotle did this. He, he, in order to help his students argue philosophically, they learned philosophical arguments. So if I want my, my children to write really, really well, they have to be steeped in Michael Morphurgo, David Armand, the great writers. Uh, and the more they read, the more they internalize the language. And if we do, if we map paragraphs or short stories and we learn them orally, irrevocably, you're putting that language in the head. So what we're saying there is you've got your basics which liberate things and then we need strong models. And this is uh, you know, short stories and things like that as models, but it's also where the reading kicks in and every teacher knows that the most proficient writers are always kids who read a lot. So what's happening when they read avidly is that they, they well, first of all, they build up, they, they build up the ability actually to sustain the imagination, imagination, to enter an imaginative world and stay with it, which you've got to have when you write. So it's giving you that ability to sustain things. It's giving you language. About 70% of our language comes out of reading particularly if you alert them to the whole idea of magpie words and phrases. You know, good writers, they are like thieves. <laughs> uh, none of the words that I'm saying at the moment are original. <laughs> I've got them from somewhere else. So a really rich vein of reading to build the imagination, to give you ideas, to give you vocabulary, to give you sentence structures, to give you elegant turns of phrase, and knowing that we can raid the reading to do the writing to improve the writing, and making that explicit and obvious. That's going to be important. So the reading, you could say, the amount and the richness and depth of reading shapes and determines the writer that we become. Because you, you can even tell what they're reading, can't you? So you take your six books, you can say, those girls are reading Jacqueline Wilson, it's all very disturbing. <laughs> These boys have been reading it an enormous amount of Antony Horowitz because that's what their writing sounds like. So what's happened is through lots and lots of reading of a favourite author, it actually shapes your style. And we want children influenced by lots of different styles. And in the end, that helps them develop their own voice. So the reading is important. And then in the classroom, it's the shared writing, I think. It's upfront modelling, interactive shared writing, what I used to call... I used to say to my class, let's, let's do one together first. So the skill of um, getting the children involved in creating a story. So we take them through the planning process, through the writing bit by bit by bit over a number of days. And when it's done really well, it's incredibly engaging because you literally are creating a story uh, as it happens. So the shared and, and the guided writing, where we use our assessment, we pull groups of children together for specific teaching. That's important. Uh, and then we write best about what we know about and what matters. So we've got to have great starting points. And I think that's another one where you could say the quality of the starting point to some extent determines the quality of the writing. So if you have a deep, rich experience, then you've got something to say. So bringing objects in the classroom, trips, visitors, um drama, work, looking at a film clip, high quality, you know, taking kids to an art gallery, rich experiences, so there is something to say. Those things are going to also be important. If the reading is thin and the experiences are thin, then the writing will be thin. 
It can't be anything other, can it, really? It's like non-fiction. You can't get good non-fiction unless children know something. They've got to be absolutely steeped. They've got to be the world's expert on the Victorians. Then there's lots to say. And we've just got to teach them how to express themselves. I want to ask you particularly about the talk writing part of it as yeah. well, because in some ways that's, in recent years, what you've come really well known for um, and, and I know that you know lots of schools will say we do talk for writing and I sometimes think that you see sometimes the children standing up and all retelling a story that part of the process where they're all retelling a story and they're doing the actions to go with it and because of that people say well we do talk for writing now I'm going to make an assumption here that you would say that was only a small part of the process yeah. but would, would you be able to just sort of talk us through you know as quickly yeah I know it's hard because we've only got a short amount of time but what does that talk for writing process look like, assuming it's a bit more than just all repeating and, and doing the actions to a story? You're right, it is a small part of it. Um, and that's the bit where they learn it word for word, really. That should be for younger children or those who need to learn it word for word and sentence because they haven't got sentence patterns. With children who are more familiar with the English language and read a bit, etc., and they can retell it in their own words. And that's much more interesting when you've mapped the text. You retell it in your own words because then you can start playing around with it. But in essence, it's built around three big ideas. Imitation is basically how you learn most things by copying. So imitation is, that's the first phase where we get to know our model text or text really, really well. So that's the input bit. So that's where um, we would probably start with some sort of assessment. So you know how proficient they are at story writing and had a go at a bit of story or something at the beginning of the year. Uh, and that will then inform you about, okay, where are we? What have I got to teach them? Um, what have I got to teach the whole class, different groups? And we can even set targets for individuals. So we start with an assessment. That drives the whole thing. Um, having done that, we need some sort of cracking good start to a unit of work teachers love this that whole business of I don't know driving a mini onto the playground covering it with some mats getting some police tape around it and a local policeman standing there saying come on in children sorry landed in the middle of the night can't say anything all of that business where you cook up a plot you know you get something going with them and I think teachers you know we all naturally love doing that so that's your sort of creative context in which you're working and getting the whole thing off the ground and then we're into the storytelling or talking the text part, which should be fun. Kids should love this. They should love storytelling. And as I say, older children shouldn't be doing it necessarily word for word. Only if they're new to this country or they are struggling, um, they should be doing it in their own words, adding in and embellishing immediately. But getting to know the text orally. And then we read it, obviously. We read it. And we can do some vocabulary work. We can be thinking, you know, doing some comprehension work asking some uh, some good questions. And then having done that, we can look at the underlying structure, which we call boxing it up, and then we can make a little writing toolkit. So those are the tools the writer might have used, say, to create suspense. So those will be things, they won't be grammar things probably, they'll be things like to create suspense, you can put your main character in the dark, on their own, and then they hear something, and then they catch a glimpse of something. Now if you get that going in a paragraph or two, you will scare the reader. So the writerly tools um, are slightly different. Well, they are different, really, to I want to see a semicolon. <laughs> you know, those aren't writerly tools uh, in quite the same way. 
So by the end of that first phase, you've taught it so thoroughly. The first phase, you see, is the scaffold. If you taught that thoroughly, everybody's going to succeed. If you've got children who struggle with spelling, then teach them, or at least provide a spelling card with the transferable spellings they're going to need. Um, so for the first phase is sort of draw it, tell it, dramatise it, read it. Um, if that's really thoroughly done, you're building them up for success. I mean, the second phase is basically now we'll have a go at doing one ourselves. We need some interesting starting points, a bit of drama, or we're going to bring objects in or take them to a setting or whatever it's going to be. And that's where the shared writing, bit by bit, and the guided into the independent writing, with the formative assessment weaving through that phase. If you do your marking after they've written, it's too late. The idea is we do it bit by bit and we weave it in so that... Um, the, the, the marking, the feedback is contributing to the development of the writing. Uh, and that, it's very scaffolded, that bit. So we, imitation is, if you like, the input. And then innovation, very scaffolded, quite controlled. But we're making sure, bit by bit, that everybody's writing at the top of their game. You're not expecting yards of writing. You're expecting high-quality, focused writing. And that sets us up for the third phase, which is invention, and that's where they then have a go on their own, working more independently. Having said that, of course, some kids might need a bit more scaffolding. So the whole thing depends on teachers making professional decisions, and I think that's why it appeals to some schools, because it's not like those schemes where it tells you exactly what to do. You've got to think as a teacher and bring your own creativity, your imagination, your teaching skill to it. It makes life easier. One of the because you know the routine. One of the other big things I think is that, and it's worth thinking about this. There are some people in this country who, for the last thirty-five years or whatever, have invented the whole of their primary curriculum, and it is a bit bonkers. So, we're in a school now, and uh, James Walker, who you met earlier, one of our great Year Six teachers, James told me that he's just done Adventure at Sandy Cove, which is a little adventure story unit for the seventh time and he's got all his resources he knows what he's doing and what that means is he's not having to spend time on planning and preparing he knows it so well he's so well resourced that he can spend time constantly you know what the, you know he's crafted those lessons he now can concentrate more and more on the learning that's going on so it shifts teachers away from wasting time on endlessly planning and preparing. It shifts them onto tweaking what they're doing in the light of the different learners that they have. I'd like to finish, if I can, by asking you a, a big question. If you were made Secretary of State for Education tomorrow, what would be your first act? The first thing I would do would be to uh, look at the teacher's pay and restore that back to a proper level. Um, and that is actually linked to the second thing that I would do. Um, I would work very, very hard to restore respect for the teaching profession in this country. We have, um, when I look back over the last 35, 40 years, the, the standard of primary education uh, in many schools in this country is absolutely second to none. What they, what they achieve with the children is pretty extraordinary. The challenges in many areas are great, and some of those schools, um, the children uh, achieve at an extremely high level. And we need to rebuild respect for the profession in this country. You know, when children come to our great schools, how lucky they are. 
how, how lucky the communities are. We need to work together on that basis of mutual respect. So I would, if I, I would work really hard with people, taking them along with me, uh, and I would purposefully take any opportunity to stand up and praise our profession. It's a great profession. It's a noble profession. This is the School Leadership Podcast. Hi, Corbett there, speaking to NAHTA's director, James Bowen. Now, before we leave, just time to tell you about one of our upcoming conference events. Next May sees the return of our new and aspiring heads conference in both London and Manchester. There's no other job which has quite so much potential to make a difference as headship. The NAHT want to help you make that difference. In your first headship, you'll face both excitement and challenge, and it'll be important to continue to invest in your own skills and to find time for reflection. This NAHT course for new head teachers has been formulated by successful and experienced head teachers from all sectors. It provides sound foundations so that you return to your school equipped to develop and deliver your vision or plan your pathway to headship, as well as prioritising the daily demands of your new role. You'll hear insights from practitioners, gain a picture of the changing educational landscape and consider ways to sustain your personal resilience throughout your career. To find out more or to sign up for the course, visit the events page of our website. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. NAHT Edge is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT Edge or NAHT member, go online to nahtedge.org.uk forward slash join or www.nahtedge.org.uk forward slash join. You can follow us on Twitter at NAHT Edge and at NAHT News. Well, thanks ever so much for listening to this episode of the School Leadership Podcast. We'll see you in a month's time.